This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Moranalytics Podcast is brought to you by Paul Cellular. Paul Cellular was created to give a better option for everyone looking for premium wireless phone service for less cost with straightforward plans, no strings attached, no confusing fine print. Paul strives to be the best value in wireless while supporting their customers with the service that they deserve and that they expect. Their mission's quite simple, to provide the best user experience possible for everyday life. They got you covered nationwide in the U.S. with unlimited talk, text, and premium, fast LTE data plans, hotspot coverage with no additional cost in all 50 states and the U.S. Caribbean regions with additional coverage available in both Canada and Mexico. Plans also include unlimited free Wi-Fi calls internationally when calling U.S. lines and unlimited text and data across 210 countries. There are no credit checks. There are no contracts. There are no overage costs. You could just live life and focus on you. Life is better with Pulse. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moran Analytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, what's going on, podcast fans? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode number 116 of the Moranalytics Podcast, presented by Pulse Cellular. Today is Friday, May 3rd. Thank you, as always, for listening, for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so. Coming up on today's show, I have a very, very and a conversation with one of the great longtime Buffalo sports media veterans, Paul Hamilton, WGR 550. He's going to be my guest in just a few minutes. We cover a ton of topics during this interview, ranging from him growing up as a hockey player, as a kid that would become a college Hall of Famer, being invited to try out for the famous 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. That's really cool, man, by the way. Landed at WGR in the mid-90s, his strong stance on Twitter, losing his wife to cancer, not just losing his wife, but also having most of his family wiped out, as he said in his own words, within just a matter of a couple years, a lifestyle change and procedure that he credits with literally saving his life, some Buffalo Sabres talk, of course, and the traditional mini lightning round to wrap up the interview. It's a really good one. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm, I always try to keep it real with y'all. I, I didn't just say that, did I? I did. Y'all. Sorry about that, man. Y'all is a 
stupid Florida word that's starting to become a habit, and I hate it. But anyway, I've had no past relationship with Paul Hamilton before this interview, and frankly, we'd never even had a conversation prior to it. And I know that his quickness to block people on Twitter and his very straightforward approach, no nonsense to covering the team and his interactions with some definitely rub a portion of fans the wrong way. And that's to say the least. So because of that, I was a little bit, to be honest with you, I was a little wary of the interview, man. I was unsure of how the conversation would go. Again, I've never had a conversation with Paul before. I'll tell you what, and I'm being honest here, hand to God, that was quite literally one of the most enjoyable interviews I've ever, ever had on this podcast. Seriously, Paul is, if nothing else, an honest dude, and he calls things the way that he sees them. I respect that. And that, by the way, that also includes him not being afraid to be hard on his own self at times. He criticized himself when he was a hockey player. He's talked about some of the media things that he's done that he could have done a better job with in the past. So he'll be hard on himself just as well as the next man that he criticizes. And I respect that a lot. Everybody who follows Buffalo Sabres hockey, whether you like Paul or not, you know that he's one of the best at what he does. You know that. And by the way, his take on Ryan O'Reilly during this interview, it's must listen. But anyway, beyond that, and I truly mean this and I feel this, I think it maybe if some of the detractors out there who are not Paul Hamilton fans, if they would just approach this interview with an open mind, I can almost promise you that you're going to come out with a whole new appreciation for him. I know I certainly did. Great interview, really good conversation. Like I said at the top, candid. That's the best way to describe this conversation. Very candid. At times, emotional. You, you can hear it in his voice. Very passionate about some of the things that he believes in and feels. So anyway, I'm going to have that interview for you in just a quick minute. One programming note, though, before we get started. As this episode drops, this comes out Friday morning. I've actually traveled back to my hometown of Buffalo, New York for a couple days, celebrating a little birthday weekend there. Before doing that, I did tape my interview for my next podcast next Tuesday. And I'll tell you what, it's with a guest unlike any kind I've ever had on the show before. So I'm pretty pumped to announce that my personal favorite American Idol contestant ever, Elliot Yamin, season five, top three finalist. If you're an old school Idol fan, you know who I'm talking about. He's going to be my guest on next Tuesday's show. Definitely a, definitely a huge left turn from the type of guests I usually have on this podcast, but I'm excited for it. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And this is something that I'm going to start doing a little more of every now and then, kind of going beyond just having sports. Sports will always be the meat and potatoes of this podcast. There's no question about that. But every now and then, if I could grab somebody from the world of music or entertainment, I'm going to start jumping on that. So anyway, that's Elliot Yamin coming next Tuesday. Let's jump into today's podcast, though, right now. Here's my interview with the veteran WGR Buffalo Sabres beat reporter, Paul Hamilton. Okay, my guest today has been at WGR 550, covering the Buffalo Sabres since 1994. He's known for being a hard-hitting reporter and one of the most accomplished Twitter blockers in the Buffalo sports media. I'm talking, of course, about veteran radio guy, Sabres, and hockey guy, Paul Hamilton. 
going on, Paul? How you doing? Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, no problem. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm glad to have you on the show. I've been hoping to get you on for quite a while now. I, and by the way, I semi-kid about the whole Twitter blocking thing in a way, but at the same token, you are kind of no-nonsense on there. If somebody pisses you off, says the wrong thing, it's bye-bye for them, ain't it? Yeah, I just don't have time for that. And it's, it's funny because people say, well, you blocked everybody. It's like, how do you know who I blocked? There's not like an app that tells you who I blocked for all people know I blocked two people. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. they don't know. But I, I have a couple of simple rules. And one, I, I don't like swearing on my line. And if somebody does, I just ask them not to nicely. And most times they apologize, say, oh, I got carried away, whatever. I'd say probably eight out of ten times. But it's not it's not a debate. It's what I, I ask for. It's just a couple of simple rules. And if you want to debate it, you're on. I'm, I'm not going to debate it with you. That's just the way I handle my line. If you don't like it, that's fine. You just move on. And the other is just be respectful. We don't have to act like children. We don't have to, you know, bring out phrases that sixth graders would pull out and act like 11-year-olds or, or anything like that. And I, I don't expect people to agree with me. I mean, and that's the way our society is. I mean, if we all agreed with each other, it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, talking about opinions and, you know, how you feel about things. But if, if you're going to get personal and, you know, start calling people names and acting like an 11 year old, again, I'm, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna deal with that. It's just, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not there to deal with that. I, I look at Twitter this way. I feel if somebody takes the time to ask me a question and I've got the time, I feel, you know, I, I can take the time to answer it. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I feel a responsibility to do that, uh, you know, when, when I've got the time to do it or if there's a question I can answer. But I just want to be a respectful type of a conversation. And, you know, those are basically the rules I have. That's cool. By the way, I was chatting with uh, Mike Harrington from the Buffalo News earlier today, and he referred to you as the Hammer. What's that nickname all about? That's kind of what he calls me. I've had two nicknames uh, in high school was Hammy. And in college, it was bone because they didn't want to say ham bone. <laughs> so they shortened it to bone instead of ham bone. And uh, I, it was funny. Rob Ray was, we were in Toronto and he was going to interview me for the pregame. And we were standing there. We were like 10 seconds from air. And for some reason, he asked me that. And I told him that. And he laughed so hard he was on the floor. And he had like five seconds to pull himself <laughs> together. <laughs> And now he started to call me Bone, and Marty started to call me Bone, and, uh, and which is fine. I mean, as I said, that's what my college, my college teammates would call me and college friends. So uh, those are really the two names that I've had throughout my life. Now, you grew up in Amherst, New York, a hockey fan at a very young age. What attracted you to the sport of hockey at such a young age? It was a flyer in, in school. I, I was uh, seven years old, and I came home with this flyer. I, I went to Smallwood in the Amherst School District, and I came home with this flyer and said, I want to play hockey. My parents looked at me, and they said, well, you can't skate. You've never skated before. You can't play hockey. I had no idea what I was asking for. I didn't <laughs> have a clue. <laughs> and, and, and I said, okay. And I, but I said, I want to play. Again, I didn't know what I was asking. I had no idea what hockey was. 
uh, for some reason I had it in my head that I wanted to play this. So they said, all right, let's just take him over to the Amherst Rec Center. We'll tell him he can't skate. They'll tell him he can't play, and that'll be the end of it. So we went over there, and they said, well, my son wants to play hockey. He got this in school, but he can't skate. So if you could just tell him that, you know, since he can't skate, he's not going to be able to play. They go, no, we'll teach him how to skate. (laughs) (laughs) So they go, okay, (laughs) I guess we're playing hockey. You know, and I remember the first time on the ice, I was out pushing around a folding chair, which would fold up on you. So, of course, you'd wipe out. Right. And uh, that's that's how hockey came about. But I didn't have any idea what I was asking. I didn't know what hockey was. Did you play other sports, too, as a kid? Um, not until, I, you know, we were always outside, you know, playing and that type of stuff. But not until I got to be a freshman. I played freshman football. Um, I was very fast, so I, was, I actually made the varsity track team as a freshman and, um, you know, started started from there. So it was football, track, and hockey once I became a freshman. I tried cross-country because I thought, you know, I'd enjoy running, and I didn't like running distances. I liked being a sprinter, so I didn't last in cross-country in eighth grade very long. But uh, it was my, my father found it very interesting that I used to bail on a, on a pitched baseball. And he goes, how come you can go face first to block a puck on the ice? He goes, you're fearless in blocking shots. But on a pitched baseball, you bail out of the box. Hmm. He goes, I don't get that. I go, I don't either. And you know what? To this day, I don't get that. I don't understand why I was afraid of a baseball, but not of a, of a hockey puck. That's, that is. That, that, that's weird. We're going to talk about... I don't want to jump too far ahead because you did go on and play college hockey. How committed were you as a youth? Because, I mean, it takes a long time to become a good hockey player. And like I said, you eventually would go on to play college hockey. We'll talk about that in a second. But did you spend a lot of of early mornings skating on the ice, a lot of weekends, a lot of traveling to go to tournaments and stuff like that? Were you a really committed young kid playing hockey? Well, at the beginning, it was just house league, and I had to kind of learn how to play hockey. Uh, probably about my third year, I started getting pretty good at it. And and I wasn't on the Amherst Town teams yet. I was still playing in the house league. So it wasn't until, what was it, my freshman year that uh, I made I made the town teams? Maybe my eighth grade year, one of the two. And um, I was an alternate one year, and uh, I was pretty lucky. I grew up at Amherst. Our football team was awful until our class came up and then we were undefeated and then they were awful again. I just, I was very, very lucky to grow up with athletes and be on really good teams, whether it was football or once I got on the town team, the hockey team, I mean, 12 of us wound up playing college hockey on that team. I mean, wow. we, we, and we were playing in the Ontario minor hockey association. And when we were real little kids, I wasn't on the team yet, but, they would come down and, and, you know, beat us badly. There was like two teams from Hamilton, one from St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, New York, Niagara Falls, Ontario, Welland. And they would beat us. Uh, we would hardly ever win a game. Well, by the time we got high school, we were winning their league. And they got embarrassed by that, so they said it was too far to travel. So then, uh, you know, we had to play, you know, more teams in around New York State and things like that. They had a New York Penn League when I was a senior. We all wound up on the Penn League, and that wasn't provide very much competition. That was 
like Rochester and us in Syracuse. I think we wound up like 30 and five and we had, we had the top 10 scores in the league. I mean, there was nobody else except our, our guys. And it was kind of sad. I, I wish the Empire State games would have, they started the year after. So none of us got a chance to play and the internet, and we probably would have made up most of the team. Uh, so we never got a chance to do that. Our football team didn't go to the stadium because that started two years later. Huh. So we didn't get, a, didn't get a chance to do that. So, you know, we, 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 you know, we, as I said, I was just, it wasn't really me. I was just blessed to grow up with a bunch of really good athletes. And I think that helped too. Now you grew up in Western New York. Am, am I right to assume you were a Sabres fan? Were they your team or did you like another team as a kid? Yeah, I like the Blackhawks. I, I think as a real little kid, I went for jerseys because I like the Chargers and I like the Blackhawks. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the Yankees. Uh, you know, in, in baseball, I, cho- I chose like four teams, two in the American League and two in the National League. So I chose like the Yankees and the A's and the Dodgers and the, and the Montreal Expos. Hmm. And in hockey, of course, I like the Sabres and then I like the Blackhawks, but I think the Blackhawks probably have the best. Their Reds are probably the best looking jersey in sports. And, you know, I like the old Chargers with the powder blue and the bolt down their pants and that type of thing. So I think that's probably what attracted me to the Chargers, too, as well as the Bills. Now, you played high school hockey. Obviously, you must have been a good player because you would go on to play college hockey at Iowa State. What made you decide? to go to Iowa State, and were there other schools that you considered going to? Yeah, I got scouted, but if I'm being honest with you, I wasn't a real diligent student right. and didn't get real great grades. I mean, I probably, I was lucky if I had a pencil in with me when I went to class and <laughs> um, probably spent a lot of time sleeping in class, and the only thing that really saved me, like, we, I got scouted by West Point, but didn't even got close to the grades uh, to get in. And what saved me was my, I had a very high ACT score. And in order for me to get into Iowa State, I had to go to summer school. I graduated from Amherst on a Sunday. On Monday, I was at Boston State taking four classes. Wow. And at midterm of summer school, my professors had to write to Iowa State and tell them what my grades were at that time. And... Um, you know, they were, they were sass. I wound up with, a, I think I did a two five in that for those four classes. And they said, that's fine. And, and they let me in. But, uh, the ACP score was really the only thing that saved me, uh, to, to, to be able to get myself in, in somewhere. And it was, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, things you look back at and said, if I only would have known, you know, you think you have all the answers and, sure. you know, if you, if you would have done better in school, you would have had a better opportunity to play elsewhere. And, uh, and, and it turned out Iowa State was a very good opportunity for me, but, um, you know, you, you just look back and even like, I, I wasn't the first guy on the ice for practice. I didn't like practice. And, you know, I look at all the things that are available to kids now. You know, I work with a personal trainer, and he works with teams, and and you know all the things that were available back or that are available now. And I think to myself, how much better a player could I have been if I had those types of things to take advantage of? You know, back when I played, and you know, would have been a little more diligent at it. So, you know, it's it was fine, and you know, I did the best with what I had, and. uh 
you know, move forward with that. Well, you had a Hall of Fame career at Iowa State. What was that experience like going there and playing there? And like you said, hindsight aside, maybe you look back and say, you know, maybe I could have been a better player if I would have done this or that, but you must have been a pretty good player. You had a Hall of Fame career there. Yeah, I was um, I, I was very fortunate. And uh, I was the type of player, I think I told you I was very fast, and I was a fast runner, I was a fast skater. I was probably a fast skater on any team I was on. I wasn't a great stick handler, but I could get around guys with speed. I would just take the outside route, blow around them, and then cut in type of a deal. It was kind of strange. I could score goals. I, I couldn't like go one-on-one on a defenseman and beat a defenseman one-on-one, but I could go in on a goaltender and keep him right out of his jock. I, I have no idea why. I think it's because I would go in on a goaltender pretty fast, and when you go in fast on a breakaway and put a move on him, you can get to point A before he can, and you can you know make it look like a real sweet move, and you just kind of slide the puck by him, when basically it's because the speed got you there before he could get there, and you kind of slide it in. So it was kind of strange that way that I wasn't a good stick. And we could do one-on-one drills all day in practice. I might be the defensive once all the whole time we do them. Hmm. But on a goaltender, for some reason, you know, if I could get a breakaway on a goaltender, I was pretty successful with that. And I, to this day, couldn't explain why. Hmm. Now, you went on to have a tryout with the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Not everybody knows that. In fact, I was talking to Mike, and he told me that you skated on a line for a day with Mark Johnson. What was that trial process like, that entire thing? Yeah, we went, there was a guy from my team, there's two of us that went, and it's it's funny because we watched the movie. The movie actually had it backwards. They had the big uh, tryout in Colorado Springs and everybody going to, to St. Paul. It was the other way around. We were in St. Paul. There were like 200-some-odd people on the ice. We got there on a Thursday, and everybody had like an hour of ice time and you never talked to Sir, to Herb Brooks. He was in the stands with 12 or 13 scouts. And they were all grading the players as, as they went along. And then you get uh, cut. Then they cut it down to 60. So you play on, they had uh, made four teams of 15. And then they cut it down to 25. The 25 are the ones that went to Colorado Springs. And, and train there, and then they they had to make the final cuts uh, from the 25 that they brought there. Obviously, I was not in Colorado Springs, but uh, it was, you know, I can tell you I did the best I could. There was no regrets. I didn't say, boy, I wish I could have played better. I probably played as well as I possibly could, even with a broken foot. They actually had to spray freeze it so I could tie my skate. Oh, wow. I had broken the top bone on my foot in my third last game. So I, it was hard to walk on it, but you could skate on it because your the top of your foot is is a when you're skating it's a glide, whereas you're walking you're now bending that area and it's like excruciating pain. So I did the best I could. Uh, the, there was no no regrets. Uh, it was a great experience, and uh, I was just you know honored to be there. As we start to transition into what will become your career. Let me ask you this. How important do you think it was to your job today, even to have played hockey like you did to the extent that you did having the knowledge of the inner workings of hockey on and off the ice in the locker room as well. You know what I mean? How much do you think that experience of you playing has helped you in your career? Especially with 
play-by-play. It helps a lot. I've done all sorts of play-by-play. My first job was in Batavia, and I would do high school football and high school basketball and high school hockey and all sorts of different play-by-play. But what I've noticed is in a hockey game, when I'm doing a hockey game play-by-play, I'm actually kind of ahead of the play. I can see what's coming. Mm-hmm. And it, like, I, and nothing annoys me more when I hear an announcer and he's like five seconds behind the goal horn when when he's trying to call a game, and I'm almost out in front of it because I can see what's coming where I couldn't see that in a basketball game because I wasn't processing the basketball game because I don't know the game as well. Or I couldn't see that in a football game. I know football better than basketball, but still not as good as hockey. So being a... I mean, play-by-play was my dream, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to do some NHL games with the Sabres and and, and be able to, to, you know, accomplish that dream. And, you know, I've had I've come very, very close to being a full-time play-by-play guy in the NHL four different times, but it just, you know, hasn't gone my way. There's a lot of competition for it. There's a lot of who you know uh, that, that goes into it, but at least I've been able to do it on the NHL basis. I for many years used to help Don Stevens in the AHL. I actually, when they won the Calder Cup with John Tortorella, I actually called that game because Don was on TV. So I did the radio. So that was a highlight, but I think that's where it helps me to, and even I've had coaches. I remember Lindy Ruff would, he, he, he would notice things and I don't like to sit and talk to people during practice. I like to watch what they're doing and listen to what they're being coached. So, when I see a game, it helps me understand a little bit more of what I'm seeing if I know what kind of things they're working on and that type of thing. And I would ask Lindy, I'd say, what are you trying to accomplish with this? And he would actually bring out his computer and show me on video. He would say, look, this is the wrong way of what it is, of what we're trying to accomplish in the system. This is the right way to do it because he felt if I'm going to talk about it, I might as well know what I'm talking about. And he thought if I took the time to take an interest in what they're doing, he could take a few minutes to show me if I didn't understand it. And it's not, he wasn't giving away any secrets or, you know, it's not really, really inside information. It was just trying to understand what they're trying to accomplish. So I know how to report on it uh, when I see it, when it's done well, and when it's not done well. Right. Now you started at WGR back in 1994 as a part-timer, but just a few months later, you found yourself covering the Sabres full-time. A quarter century later, you're still covering the Sabres. How did that opportunity at WGR come about? Both getting into the company and the gig covering the Sabres, which would ultimately become your career. Well, my first job was in Attica. And then the, the Batavia station, WBTA, bought the Attica station. It was an FM. And I worked five years there. And after five years... and. I was doing all the play-by-play, over 100 games of play-by-play, and that was such invaluable experience. I mean, nowadays, guys don't get that anymore. They they start in Buffalo, and then I got left out of Buffalo. It's like, get out of here. I mean, we, you know, when you get a little experience, come on back. And, you know, I, I got that experience, but after five years, and I was making $11,900 a year, and doing sports in the morning and then coming back in the evening and doing games, they told me they couldn't afford me anymore. (laughs) And that was the end of that. And I'm thinking, am I in the right business here? I mean, this, this really, so I I actually got in the airline business for a while. I got a job with Piedmont 
which was uh, purchased by U.S. Air. So I was doing that for a little while, but I was staying into it. My wife, uh, my late wife, worked at uh, WEBR, which is the first all-news radio station, and they had sports there. So I would fill in for Sam Anson and Dave Kerner when they were on vacation. So I would still, I still had my hands in it a little bit, and that was kind of my entrance into the Buffalo market. But I just kept getting laid off by the airlines. It wasn't a good time for the airlines. And after about four years of that, I was working at Trans World Express and got laid off there. And I said, well, this isn't working out either. I mean, and I happened to come across WGR. Barry Butel was working there, and he told me I applied, and he was the sports director. Gerald Parks was the program director. And he said, look, we got a weekend shift as a board op. And I said, Barry, I'm so, I've done all that. I've kind of paid my dues. I'm not ready to be a board op anymore. And he goes, Paul, you got to be here to be in it. He goes, he goes, you just, you got to be here. He talked me into it, and I did it. And I used to do, because the board ops used to do the 2020 sports, Mm-hmm. And I was board hopping for Doug Young on Saturdays, and I would get to do the 2020 sports. And from there, I got a few that's uh, opportunities to do some talk because they liked my 2020 sports. They thought, well, this guy's pretty polished. I found out quickly I do not like talk because I talk show host. Let me put it that way. Right. It's not that I don't like talk radio. I don't think I'm a good talk show host. I, I I I don't like callers say what they want. I cut them off. I I I just I think I'm too volatile a little bit to be a talk show host, and I could see that right away. And I would get too uptight about it. And and what if nobody calls me? What am I going to do? And and everything else. But I got the opportunity to do that, and fairly quickly into it. Uh, this is I got I think I got hired in October. This was by March. Barry got a job with the Cleveland Indians. And he had to leave like immediately and head to spring training. And I took over uh, just till the to, to get through the season. There's only you know March and April, and they had won a series, so I took over for that. And then they had to hire somebody, and they decided that they were going to hire from within. And I got the job. And as it turned out, Barry was absolutely right. Had I not come in and done that part time and say maybe swallow my pride and did that part-time thing, I never would have gotten a job because they were not going to hire from outside. They were hiring within. And I was it was right place, right time, and I got the job and have had it ever since. I love hearing those stories. It's so often that one or two little things that will often jumpstart a, a really good career. You hear about things like that all the time. There's been so many changes in sports media nowadays. Nobody seems to stay at one place for very long, yet you've been at WGR for a long time now. You haven't bounced around anywhere else. I feel like continuity can be important. That's definitely the case at WGR 550 for sure. How comfortable has it been for you knowing, like Howard and Jeremy, that they've been together for so long in the mornings and like Chopin Bulldog in the afternoon, they've been together for a long time as well. The segments with Rob Ray, et cetera, those have been going on for a while. There's definitely continuity at WGR. What do you attribute that to? I feel bad for the young guys that come in because there are a lot of guys who would like my job, but they come in and they wound up, wind up leaving and maybe getting into other fields because they're like, 
we're never going to get the opportunity. You know, the only thing that probably would make me leave is if I got a play-by-play job somewhere, I would definitely take it. Right. But I'm not looking to work at another sports radio station. I mean, this is where I grew up. This is my home. Um, I, I really like my job. I mean, how many people in this world can say they love their jobs? Not many. I mean, not many. You know, and, and I never lose sight of that. I really don't. And people will say to me on Twitter or live, say, I feel so bad for you that you got to watch this garbage hockey. And I said, wait a minute, don't ever, ever, ever feel bad for me. I said, I'm watching hockey. Forget about if it's good hockey or bad hockey or whatever it is. I'm watching hockey for a living and football for a living. Are you kidding me? I mean, the people that are out at two-degree weather digging ditches, freezing their buns off, those are the people, you know, that are working. The people that hate what they're doing and but trying to put food on the table for their children, those are the people that, you know, you worry about those people. Don't worry about me. I'm watching hockey for a living. Are you kidding? I mean, so I... I I, I never lose sight of the fact that I, I'm a lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones that gets to do what they love for a living. Who's really influenced you through the years in the sports media? And one or two guys or women, whatever that that are really good at their job that you kind of look up to. You really like what they do. They've helped influence how you do your job. When I was at WEBR, Sam Anson uh, was definitely, he used to work at GR also, and then he was the sports director at WEBR, and he would always give me some great advice uh, on, you know, he goes, make sure, you know, when you're 30 years old, you're doing what you want to be doing here, and, you know, you're still at a, at a place where, you know, you can you can do something else if you want to, or, you know, he always would talk about the career and what's involved in it, and, you know, you're not going to become a millionaire, uh, you know, working in radio or anything like that, especially as a reporter. Talk show hosts will make more money, but, you know, especially as a reporter. And he was really, really a huge influence on my career, as was Bill Rosinski, who was around when I was an intern at WEBR. And then he turned out, and he wound up at uh, a lot of networks. He's still at networks doing play-by-play. He, uh, with the... Uh, Pro Golfers Tour now. That's where Kevin Sylvester went. The two of them yeah. work uh, yeah. on radio doing doing things. And Bill's called Super Bowls. I mean, he and he he never forgot me. I mean, he, he he's from Buffalo. And he, when he comes back to town, I mean, he, he we still get together and talk. And and he was a huge influence on my career when I was an intern there. And and he was the sports director. And you know, he wasn't too big to you know let me do things like. You know, there was always a sports feature that had to be done every day, and they would take turns. Uh, Bud Bailey was their part-time guy, and Dave Kerner and, and Bill, and they would take turns doing the feature. But if I wanted to, he would assign me to go out and talk to somebody, interview somebody, and and get it done. And I would actually write the feature, and I would voice it up. I, they couldn't put me on the air because I was an intern. But I would voice it up, and they would critique me, but they would actually use my feature and the way I wrote it up, and they would just, one of them would have to just voice it up for me. And, uh, you know, they would, you know, use my name that, uh, you know, I produced it and wrote it and everything. And, I mean, what a huge, what great experience that was for me to be able to come in and do those types of things in, in a market. As I said, at the time, Buffalo was a really decent market when it, they weren't these 
22, 23, 24-year-olds that you're seeing on TV and radio now. Um, you, you know, it's, you, you, you know, it was, it was, you know, the veteran guys were in there it was considered what would be a large market. Now, I think that's what is considered back then. And that was the kind of talent that was around. As I told you, when I graduated and I would just, I would, I tried, but I mean, program directors just laughed me out of the place. Like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. <laughs> you know, go, go, go to some podunk town, work in radio there. And, and I had some radio experience. Of course, I, you know, I worked at the campus radio station in Ames, Iowa. I worked at the local radio station. So I had done a, some professional news writing and things like that when I was in school. Well, they didn't care. I mean, it was like, it, you know, we, if you don't have five years experience, don't, don't even pick up the phone and call me type of thing. <laughs> now, you strike me. And let me be clear here. This is no way, shape or form whatsoever a negative statement at all. But you strike me as someone who... If you had your way, there would be no social media, no Twitter, no fancy gadgets, Periscope, podcast. And, oh, I really appreciate you being on this one, of course. Stuff like that. It, it seems to me like you're listening to the radio, reading the newspaper every day type of guy. Totally old school. Am I correct with that theory? Um, I don't know if I throw podcasts and that stuff in it because if I'm being honest with you, I probably don't listen to a lot of them. Right. Um, but, but that's being old school. You know, yeah. I have my newspaper delivered here every day. Yep. I could, I could read it online. I don't like I'm on the road. I don't like leave reading it online. I don't, I don't know why I just don't. I like having the newspaper in my hands as I, as I'm reading it. That, I mean, that's pretty old school, that type of thing. The Twitter thing is just, I just think it's such a cesspool of negativity and garbage and gutless people that, you, you know, Sit, they can't even. They don't even put their names on things, and they sit in their basement and take shots at people. And back when I was a kid, if you wanted to bully somebody, you did it face to face. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's okay, but the the I I can't imagine kid what kids go through now, growing up with the crap that they have to put up with on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook isn't a bad place for me because. I do not take friend requests from anybody I don't know. Facebook is my personal place, right. where Twitter is my professional place. Right. And um, so Facebook, to me, isn't a bad place for me to be on, but I don't have listeners you know, calling me a fat pig and, and swearing at me and, and that kind of stuff and and all, all that type of stuff. And I just... All, all, the, all the vile... Vile. I, I, I'm not even going to tell you some of the things that have been said. Uh, I can imagine. My, I've been you know, about I, my dead wife, yeah. about uh, all sorts of things. And then you look at their profile, and there's two little children up there. And I'm thinking, my God, yeah. what is wrong with you? You are a father. What in the world is wrong with you yeah. to be putting this vile garbage out there? And they don't put their names on it, and it it, I, it just turns my stomach. But you know, tw- I, I've chosen a profession where Twitter is a is a necessary evil, and uh, you know I have to be on it. I don't like it. I, as I said, I, I I'm more than happy to answer questions and that type of thing if people you know have have questions and you know are, are civil and that. And you know what, most of them are. It's not that everybody is like that, but there's just such a faction of people that, that 
to me, just make it such a negative, negative. And I'm not the person who's refreshing my Twitter all the time. Uh, you know, I, 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 when I go on my computer, I look at it. I have to because now teams, you know, they, they announce things on Twitter. Right. I mean, yeah. That's the way they, they put things out there. And, and so you have to be on it and you have to be, be up on it. But I'm not that person who's sitting there all day long on my phone trying to, you know, refresh Twitter and worrying about what, you know, so-and-so is saying and what the president's saying and what, who, whatever is saying. I really don't care. Um, and, you know, I just kind of find my way and do it that way. I'll tell you, Paul, I really think that Twitter is one of the more fascinating conversations that you could have nowadays because there's two sides to the fence. On one hand, you are you use Twitter to promote your brand, your your articles that you post on WGR, your radio appearances, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of good things to be had for Twitter. In my in the case of me, my podcast, you know, being able to promote it, getting people on the show, stuff like that. There's definitely a good side. But at the same token, and you just said it perfectly, it can be such a nasty, evil place filled with people who are looking to to be mean and to get under your skin. That's the only objective that they have. I can't imagine, and again, just speaking for me, I have, I don't know, a handful, a thousand people, but even me, I get if I have a podcast guest on and somebody doesn't like the guest or if they have a take or if I have a take that they don't like, I hear about it, trust me, I hear about it too. And it's not just one of those, oh, you suck kind of deals. I can live with that. Sometimes they just get really personal because they know that that's the way to hurt somebody. I can't imagine in the case of mainstream media people who have much, many more followers and have to interact with people a lot more, or even worse, athletes, all the stuff that they got to go through when in this nasty world of Twitter. You know, back in the day, I would imagine it'd be at least a little bit easier. Like take the Buffalo Bills in the mid 80s, for an example. They stunk. They were awful. But in some regards, they kind of did it quietly. You know, they didn't have to hear from fans unless somebody yelled at them coming in and out of a, the stadium or a grocery store or whatever. And that sucks, too. But that's one thing. But in today's world, man, you go on Twitter and the hate is just real. It's it's beyond description. It's beyond words at times. I just I can't imagine how terrible at times that it must be. Yeah, I, I, and I know there was a TV personality who, I mean, I watched Twitter make her cry. I mean, because she was she didn't weigh 105 pounds. I mean, she wasn't fat by any means. Right. But people were calling her fat and and things. It's like, what 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 do you gain by going after this sweet person who who wouldn't hurt anybody by calling her fat and calling her a slob? And you, you should lose weight. What I, I just, I can't, I can't, put, I can't wrap my head around why people think that is okay, and, and and just a lot of the things that go on on Twitter that people think that's okay, and I and I and I just, what happened to our society? I mean, what happened? I mean. I, I first of all, I wouldn't do it anyway. But I would be afraid. Now my mother's no longer alive. But if she was alive, I'd be, I'd be thinking, what if my mother read this? I'd be so embarrassed, yeah. you know, to write something like that and have my mother read this and then call me 
and call me out on this? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, it's just, what happened to the decency and, and who's bringing some of these people up? I mean, I, I just, I, I just common courtesy and decency and it broke my heart to see this girl like we brought to tears because of, you know, people on Twitter criticizing her appearance. And as I said, she was not fat by any means, but she didn't weigh 110 pounds. So people thought it was okay to criticize them and, and, and to, to mock their appearance. And it's just like, I just don't understand what people's motivations are to, to do that to another human being. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, your wife passed away about eight years ago following a long, brave fight with cancer. How much did the outpouring of support of your colleagues in the sports media, as well as many fans, I mean, we spent some time talking about the cruel, dark side of fans, but I like to think those are the minority. You had a lot of outpouring of support from fans as well, well wishes, stuff like that. That helped you a little bit get through what I'm sure had to be the toughest time of your life. And by the way, you've also played that board, that support, being very supportive of others who are fighting cancer and who have fought cancer, including one in this area, sports media community, Jenica Trell, who's a wonderful person. She's been on this podcast before. I love Jenna. Well, I feel like I've known Jenna all my life and I've probably known her three years, maybe. It was in the middle of her fight. There was a press conference in the atrium and I just found out she was pretty far into her fight by then. And I walked up to her and I introduced myself and we sat down on the floor of the atrium and talked for like over an hour and cried together. And, you you know, I, I talked to her about my wife and talked to her about her and, you know, just to see, you know, what she's been able to do and how brave she's been and to be able to beat it. I don't know if I've cried more, you know, of somebody's success than I have with hers. I probably see her five times a year, if that, mm-hmm. you know, at events, because we don't, we're not around each other that much for being in Rochester. And I, I remember I said to her the other day when I saw her, she gave me a big hug and I said, you know what? I feel like I've known you forever. And, and just the connection we made as two people who have been through it in different ways was, it it was, it's, it's very, very difficult to describe. And I wouldn't have been able to do it. I remember I had to wait about a week for my wife's funeral for people to get in and stuff. And, after that week, my boss was Andy Roth. My sister-in-law said, walked up to my sister-in-law and said, are you sure Paul's ready to come back to work? Because I was going to go back to work on that Monday. And she goes, he has to. He's not the type that can sit alone. I mean, that's when it would get to me, is sitting alone. I mean, that's when you, you know, really it bothered you and it really got to you. And to have guys, I mean, guys like Rob Ray and Dan Dunleavy, and they're like a second family to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we hang out on the road. We have a great time. And even the team itself, I remember before I left, it was in the beginning of January, which is about three weeks before she passed or two weeks. And I, I had to, I had to find, she to us to a point where I had to be with her full time. 
And Lindy Ruff says to the PR guy, he said, I want to talk to Paul before he leaves. And we talked about a half hour. I don't think we talked about hockey once. But you know how it's like the media against the coaches or the media against the players. And it is that way. But when it gets down to life like that, I mean, he, he wanted to, to talk to me and just, you know, kind of be with me for a while. When I got back, every player except, I think, three, like, hugged me as they came back. Ryan Miller was in tears when I came back. And, you know, Ryan can be pretty crusty at times. And sure. sometimes wasn't too happy with the media. But this was this was different. You know, and the players had taken up a collection and donated it to Roswell, you know, in her in her name. And, you know, I was pretty touched by that. So I, I kind of needed to be around my second family because basically in 10 years, I pretty much had my whole family wiped out. My parents were gone. My sister was gone. My best friend was gone. Uh, my wife was gone. My dog was gone. I mean, it was, I went from like never really experiencing death to basically being wiped out. And I didn't have any children, but I do have two goddaughters, one through my sister's daughter and one through Dawn's sister's daughter. And, you know, that's my family, my sister-in-law and my two goddaughters. And that's pretty much what I have left. And Karen is still in town. The other two are in Ohio. So there's not a lot of family in town except Karen. Karen's great to me. She couldn't be better. But, um, you know... My extended family was really what got me through it. I needed to be with them. I needed to be back doing my job and back with people. And that's what got me through. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a few years ago, you made a big commitment to improving your health, your nutrition, your lifestyle. I remember reading about it, a a significant feature story in the Buffalo News, which I thought was great. How has that process been for you? And how difficult can it be sometimes for people out there wanting to do the same. I'm sure there's somebody out there listening who maybe has kind of went through the same thing and then they want to make major lifestyle changes. What, what advice would you give them? If I'm being totally honest with you, I was eating myself to death. I don't know if I, at the rate I was going, I don't know if I would have lasted two more years. And it was after the draft in Buffalo, I walked out the front door of the arena over to the parking garage to the second floor, I was so far out of breath, I could hardly breathe at all. It was almost like I was suffocating. I was I sweated through my shirt, and it was just like that. That was it. That was it. My my niece had done it too. She had lost over a hundred pounds. My goddaughter, and so I knew the process, and that's when it hit me. I go, that's it. I've got to do this. I have got to do this because I want to live. And the, this is not normal. Walking, walking across the street and sweating through your clothes is not normal. I'd go in the locker room and be sweating through my suit. It was so embarrassing, you know, to, to be dripping. Yeah. It's two degrees outside, and I'm in the locker room dripping. I really, I stopped going out with people. I didn't want to date anybody because of my appearance and who wants to go out with somebody who's sweating, right. you know, and it just, so I, I sat home and basically did nothing. And it's like, you're existing right now. You're not really even living. And that's what made me do it. And 
even when I found out my insurance wouldn't pay for it, I didn't flinch. I thought, I'm still doing it. At that time, I thought it was going to cost me over $25,000. Wow. My, my boss said to me, he was pretty upset that insurance didn't pay for it. And he said to me, he goes, call the hospital and see what they can do for you. And I did. And it turned into like $8,000, which was a big difference, you know, and, and, uh, but still I didn't, if, if I had to take out five loans, I, I thought I had to do this. I just had to. And I did. And, you know, lost. 90 some odd pounds and I've had a few troubles along the way. I had to have my gallbladder out. I've had a bleeding ulcer and it's affected my workouts because to be successful at this, in my mind, you have to work out. I went back to my personal trainer. I've been off and on with him for years. Jared knows me very well, but I never could stick with it, you know? And so I had an exercise probably in five years and I went back to him in August. The surgery was till October, but I was worried about like excess skin and, and flab. And I thought, I asked him, I said, if I start working out, might that help reduce, you know, when you have rapid weight loss, you have a lot of excess skin sometimes. And he goes, no, absolutely. And, you know, he knew I was really, really out of shape. And, and it only took like a month to really start getting me back to, kind of where I, I, he had seen me before when he had seen me like five years before or whatever. And as he had commented to me, and I think you might've seen in the article, he had said to me, he goes, there's still an athlete under there. He said through all, under all that, you never lose that athlete. Right. He goes, you, he goes, you can, he, he's a guy with heart rate. He, he has a heart rate monitor on. I could bring my heart rate. He does things where you sprint, you you start your heart rate at 70, then you sprint to get it up to 90, then you stop and bring it down to 70. You do like 20 of those. Mm-hmm. He goes, you actually bring your heart rate down faster than I have people who run marathons. He goes, and that is your hockey training. That's your shift, you know, where you're out for 30 seconds, off for 30 seconds. He goes, you never lost it. It's still in there. And he goes, that's, you know, when you played hockey for all those years, he said, that's why you still can get your heart rate down so fast. And it, it was just amazing. He, he told me, he goes, you're a freak of nature. He goes, but you're, you shouldn't be able to do what you do. And he goes, even at your age now, he goes, I, I, he goes, I don't let up on you at all. And he said, I don't have people, anybody your age that can do what you can do, what you do. He goes, you can pretty much do anything I ask you to do. And you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's been, I went from not being able to walk from the arena to the, to the, to the car to be, I can, I go down to that path down at the waterfront. It's a two mile path on the outer Harbor. Uh-huh. I'll rollerblade that twice. That's eight miles. And it's in some of it's against the wind. Cause you're right there down at the water. Yeah. And I couldn't even have put on a set of rollerblades. I couldn't have been over probably to tie a set of rollerblades before. Uh, or, you know, the Bauks and I, Greg Bauk and his wife, will go hiking along the Niagara Gorge. I never, ever thought I'd be able to do that again in my life. But it's it's almost, you know, emotional and humbling when you can think of things that you never thought you'd be able to do and you wonder if you're going to be able to live. Because I was basically addicted to food. I couldn't stop. 
I couldn't stop eating garbage. I ate garbage and crap all the time, and I couldn't. I would tell myself not to, and I would just continue to do it. And, you know, the, I needed the help of having a smaller stomach. So even if you do happen to get in the garbage, you, you can't eat much of it. Right. I mean, uh, I used to be able to eat over half a pizza, large pizza. Now I'm lucky if I can get one slice down. Yeah. You know, because you have a, a pouch as your stomach, and I needed that help. But first you have to admit you need that help before you, you can actually do it. Is it tougher to maintain that kind of lifestyle, those changes, being a reporter who's on the road a lot? Like, take someone like me for an example. If I decide that I'm going to make a lifestyle change and I got the gym that's right around the corner from me and the grocery store down the road, I go there, I buy the same consistent foods and I have a nice little routine. But for guys like yourself who are on the road a lot, can that get difficult at times going from city to city and you're always staying in hotels and you know, having to go to restaurants and stuff like that, where maybe the things that you like and that you're used to aren't always accessible. Does being on the road like that, does it make it difficult or at least more difficult for you sometimes? Yeah, it can. Yes. Um, the lucky thing is, is I can't eat much. You know, I, I feel bad at times on the road. Cause if I go to a restaurant here in Buffalo, if I order pasta or something, I bring it home. That's three or four meals. Right, yeah. One one meal out for me is three or four meals uh, because I can't eat that much. But on the road, i got to leave it. Yeah. You know, and I, I hate doing that. I hate wasting it, but I can't eat it. I'm not going to even try. Um, somebody said to me I should box up and, like, give it to a homeless person or whatever. But, you know, I don't pass that many homeless people when I'm walking around or that type of thing. It's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah. But, um so yeah, it's it's tougher. I'm probably to a point now where I'm maintaining. I, I still need to lose some more weight. I probably should lose another fifty pounds. And but with the surgeries I've had and it kinda I, it's it's affected my workouts and I couldn't work out as much. But at least I'm not gaining weight. Right. You know, I'm not putting it back on. I've just kinda you know, I I have that initial surge of losing like ninety, ninety five pounds and I've kind of sat there for a little while now, but that's, you know, that's okay. Cause as I said, I, at least I'm not, I haven't gained it back. And that was, it's been almost, well, it'll be three years in October. So, um, you know, that's, that's the good thing. And, you know, now we're going to get into better weather and I can start strapping on the rollerblades again. And I, you know, from this ulcer that I had, I, which was at the beginning of February, I'm feeling much better. And, uh, you know, it's, it's back at it again. One more question, and then I got a couple of savory things for you as we start to wind down. Health stuff aside, just being on the road in general, do you still enjoy it a lot? Um, I would assume that maybe when you were younger, it was a lot easier and more enjoyable to be on the road, see different cities, for, you know, many of them for the first time. But after doing it for so long, does going on the road a lot, it, does it feel like a hassle sometimes? Or is, is it still something that you really enjoy doing? I've never enjoyed it. I've never not enjoyed it is what I do, you know, and it's actually much easier now than it was earlier because I'm not as heavy. True. You know, when I was, when I was had all that weight and I was that bad, I would have to stop on my way to my room. I would have to stop like five times because I was so out of breath, you know, pulling a, a bag with me or whatever. 
So it's so much easier now. You know, the guys would go out to eat and I'm lagging behind and being embarrassed because I can't keep up. And, you know, now I can keep up when they're walking and, and just little things like that, you know, that, that I was always being embarrassed, you know, and, and now I'm not embarrassed anymore. And now I can go in the gym and, and keep up with Rob or, or whatever when we're working out or, or, you know, doing the things that are probably, I mean, actually ahead of them in a lot of things we do now. And so it's actually easier for me to travel. It's, it's a lot easier, not just easier. It's night and day traveling now than it was then. And, and age to me is, it's, I don't know. I, I, I half the time, I don't even know how old I am. I, I, I don't act my age, first of all. And <laughs> I, you know, I I can do things physically. I still play softball, and I the only reason I don't still play hockey is because uh, you know I had gotten another major concussion in the early two thousands, and the neurologist made me stop. But uh, you know, I I never thought I'd be still be playing softball. I figured I I'd be done playing in my thirties. But uh, you know, it's so it's to me I I don't know. It's I, I don't even think of age. That's half cool. the time I don't even half the time I don't even know how old I am. <laughs> well, listen, I don't I, even think about it. I have to start. I have to start. I have to start doing the math. Let's see. I was born, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> that that that's funny. All right, so listen, I'd be an idiot to have you on this podcast and not talk Sabers for at least a couple minutes here. We're taping this late into the day on Wednesday. Who knows if something happens before this airs on Friday morning? But as of right now, the Sabers do not have a head coach who are one or two guys that you would like to see the Sabres pursue, like to see the Sabres hire that you would feel good about as a head coach here going forward. I don't think they will by Friday. I mean, I, I, I like what Bottrell's doing here. I like the fact that he seems to be interviewing a lot of people and he wants to hear what they have to say and what their thought is and what their plan is. Cause a lot of people say to me, well, nobody wants the job because they haven't hired anybody. No, that's not the case. He's just talking to a lot of people, and I don't think he's done yet. I mean, I still think uh, he would like to talk to Sheldon Key for the Marlies. That's it. The Leafs will let him, uh, but they're still playing in the Calder Cup uh, championships. Ricard Gromberg, uh, the Swedish national coach, has the world championships coming up, which Bostrom will be at. So, um, and by the way, to fans who are all upset that Jason Bottrell's one of the three GMs of Team Canada and is shirking his responsibilities, I just wrote about this today. It's just like, do you realize that he would be there anyway? I mean, he's there. The GMs are there scouting, looking for European free agents, and uh, so he would be there anyway. Do you, do you really think that three weeks at a tournament? where what does he actually have to do? They have to pick the team as GMs, and that's basically they're done. Right Now it's the coach's job. So, you know, unless they have to replace somebody as a GM, there's really not much to do. They do have cell phone service in Slovakia, so if Don Meehan wants to call and talk about Skinner, as I wrote, it's not like he hops in his car and drives to Buffalo every time he wants to talk about Skinner. He calls up on the telephone, or if somebody wants to make a trade, they call up on the telephone. 
he's still available by phone. There's, so there's nothing. He, it's not like, I don't know what people thought he should be doing and what responsibilities with the Sabres he's shirking by being over there when he would be over there anyway, especially if he wants to interview Gromberg, which I, I know he does. That's where he is. He's over in, in Slovakia trying to take Sweden to their third straight world championships. He means one, two in a row. So, I mean, so that's, that's where he is right now. And he intrigues me, you know, Gromberg. He's a guy that's won gold medals. He's won the last two world championships. And when you're coaching the world championship team, you have NHL players on it. So it's not like he's never coached NHL players. He is coached on the college level here in the in in North America, so he's been here. He understands that. Um, he the way he coaches Team Sweden is very innovative in, in what he does. He keeps up with the latest trends in hockey. I had a chance to talk to a lot of his former players who play for the Amherst, probably five of them. Um, they all feel that he could easily make the transition to the NHL. They would have no problems whatsoever being able to do it. But this is a guy that knows how to win and has won. And uh, he intrigues me. He does. I, 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 I like different, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not looking for a 60 year old Jacques Martin. He's 57, but we'll round it off to 60 and or 67. I'm sorry. Or a 70 year old Jacques Martin. And, um, I, I would rather have a guy, not that Gromberg's young, but a guy with innovative ideas. And at least you tried something different. And if it works, that's fantastic. If it doesn't, at least you tried something different because I can almost guarantee you what Jacques Martin's bringing. And it's not a whole lot. It's it's mediocre, middle of the road, okay. I'm not. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for okay. I'm looking for somebody who has done some winning. And and you know, it, it, I, I, he intrigues me a lot. Now you've been covering this team for a long time. You've covered them when they were the best team in the league, and you've covered them several times when they were literally the worst, including a few of those that people would argue were the worst team on purpose. Uh, this past season, was that one of the most confusing teams you've ever covered? I don't want to say frustrating because you talked about it earlier. You cover hockey for a living. It's never bad for you, but confusing. I, I mean, I sit here sometimes shell-shocked at how hard the bottom fell out from this team after the first few months, how it went from so good to so bad, seemingly so quickly. You know what I mean? It was historic. I mean, I've never seen anything like it because I don't think it's happened the way that's happened. I mean, they were the worst team. When they were the best team from that point forward, they were the worst team in the National Hockey League by a pretty good number. It wasn't just by a point or two. And to see that kind of a collapse is just unheard of. But, you know, we, I think we all knew, or most, maybe maybe not. I mean, a lot of people on Twitter, I think, thought they should have been that good, that, well, they were that good before. Why aren't they that good now? I I think they had the good fortune of winning seven overtime games out of the ten. Yeah. They had to do it. They got good goaltending. They were getting the key saves at the key time, which is important. And they were getting key goals at the key times by by their players, but you know, to, to expect that that was going to keep going. I never changed my expectation, which was, I thought 
this team should have been playing meaningful games throughout March in a race. And they weren't even able to do that. Right. They were done by February. And it was like, how could that have happened? And, and it wasn't their plan to fire Phil Housley, even as late as when Mottrell talked to us in Tampa in February. I think, you know, I think the plan was to fire the assistants and keep Housley, but I think it got to a point they realized we can't do that. You know, we, we've got to, we've got to do something different. And I think in my mind, the biggest minus for Phil Housley was, is this is my defensive system. Well, it really wasn't a system. The players didn't know what they were doing. It was very obvious. They didn't have a clue what they were doing in the defensive zone. But Housley's answer was, we're just going to go back to work and do it better. A good coach, I think, takes a look at the talent he has and say, they can't do this. You know what? This I believe in this system, but we just don't have the players to execute this system. We're going to have to make some tweaks. And he wasn't willing to do that. He was like, I know this system will work. And it's like, Phil, yes, it'll work when you're with the National Predators. It'll work for the Tampa Bay Lightning, but it's not going to work for your team. You're not the natural predators. You don't have the defense you had with the natural predators. And it just seemed like he never understood that. And I think that was his downfall. What were your thoughts at the time and even today on the Ryan O'Reilly trade? Obviously, it's a trade. It didn't work out for Buffalo. Certainly not to this point anyway. You've been in that locker room as much as any Buffalo Sabres reporter. You've probably talked to Ryan O'Reilly as much or more than anyone. Was it a move that you felt was the right necessary move at the time? Or did he kind of become a scapegoat for a lot of other team issues? No, absolutely. It was the right move. I, I A lot of people believe it was that last day that, that made the Sabres trade him. Well, they tried to trade him at the trade deadline long before he made those comments. There was, there were things that went on that, uh, you know, he wasn't a fan of Jack Eichel's at all. Jack was fine with him. Jack didn't have any problems with him. But he, I, I, I don't know if it was a jealousy thing or I think there might have been an incident or two that went on that Ryan O'Reilly wasn't happy with. I think Ryan O'Reilly wants to be the main guy. He wore out his welcome in Colorado. He wore him out his welcome in Buffalo. But in St. Louis, he's been the main center. He knew he never was going to be the captain. He never was going to be the leader, and he never was going to be the number one center in Buffalo. And, and he knew that was going to be Jack Eichel. And I, I just the, the self-deprecating that he would do that it's, it's hard to listen to. And it, the players, after a while, the players are just like, "Will you shut up and just play?" And I would say to him because a lot of the stuff he would say he was right, and I thought your self-evaluation is dead on here. Why aren't you doing something about it? And, and, and a couple of times live on post games, I think twice I said to Michael Ryan, you have said this to me so many times. What are you going to do about it? I mean, it just keeps you saying it over and over again that you're not good enough. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm just going to work harder and, and then, you know, and he wasn't the, 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 the thing of two way player was a complete and utter myth. I can't tell you how many times I would go on the air with Brian Cozio in overtime and say, Ryan O'Reilly lost his guy in overtime, and it wound up in the net. He lost the battle. I remember in Montreal, he lost the battle on the wall, wound up in the net. 
and it, there were it's just time and time again in the Winnipeg series this year with St. Louis. Um, I remember before St. Louis took over the series, Winnipeg was all over them. They won an overtime game, and the Shifley line from about the five minute mark of the second period on absolutely dominated O'Reilly and his line. Just ran him over. And sure enough, on the overtime goal, there he was, went into the zone, did a big circle coming back, loafed coming back, Winnipeg scored with him standing in the slot watching. And I thought, and I actually texted uh, Mike Harrington. I go, Mike, play that back on your TV, take it all the way back to the offensive zone. That is exactly what I have been talking about since this guy played for the Sabres. That kind of effort and that play right there. And I said, you can go back to the second period, and he has been awful in that game. And he has played better with St. Louis, and I remember when he came into town, he told me himself, Tarasenko. He didn't have have a winger like Tarasenko in Buffalo or in Colorado. And he had that there, and he credits Tarasenko with a lot of what he's doing. Last question here, and then we're going to wrap up with the traditional mini lightning round. Obviously, re-signing Jeff Skinner is the biggest priority. What else do you think the Buffalo Sabres can realistically accomplish over the summer, besides, of course, getting a new head coach? Well, they're going to have to make some trades. I mean, there's no no question about that. I don't think unrestricted free agency is the way to go. It hasn't been for a long time. That market, with all the long-term contracts that were signed, that market's been dried up for three or four years. Now, Duchesne is a name that would be interesting, but is Columbus? Columbus probably knows it's losing Panarin, and Duchesne has been so good for them in the playoffs, they may want to you know, make him an offer and try to keep him in Columbus, and it wouldn't surprise me in the least if he signs before free agency comes up. So, you know, that might be one of the few names. I mean, it worked for Tavares in Toronto, but it's really not the way to build a team. Oh, now, now the college free agents and the European free agents, a lot of a lot of teams are going that route, and of course, you know, through the draft and through trades. But they definitely need to make some trades. I think there's guys who have been here too long, who all they've done their whole careers is lose. And I just think it's time for changes of scenery for guys like Gergensons and Larson and Ristolainen and. I mean, that's all they've known is losing. And, and I think they've just had enough of it. I think their will to keep going with the Buffalo Sabres, I think, has probably dried up a little bit. And, you know, I think, you know, you have to maybe eliminate some of them, but they're going to have to make some trades to, to bring some people in here and to, to, you know, upgrade this team significantly because they've, they've got a, some big problems with some big holes here. Yeah. All right, here's what we're going to do. Mini lightning round. I have this with all my guests. I'm just going to ask you a handful of random questions. Not a lot of deep thought required, kind of like rapid fire style. Whatever the first thing that pops in your mind, that'll be your answer. You good with that? Yep. All right, let's go. Favorite all-time athlete? Lance Allworth. Favorite non-sports related activity to do? Non-sports hiking. Okay. You've been to a lot of cities, obviously. What's your favorite city to visit? Favorite city to visit, Chicago. Okay. Who is the most entertaining fellow sports reporter that you know? Sports reporter? Yeah. Or anyone in the sports media. 
most entertaining person you know in the sports media? Butchie Ross, I like him. I think he's a, a pretty entertaining person. I, I know I'm probably missing some. That was the first name that came to my mind. Well, there you go. Those are the rules. Favorite sports movie ever? Miracle. All right. Here's a good one. If you could go to a karaoke show, okay, and you had the ability to rock out any song in the world that would get the crowd on its feet cheering and partying along, in your own world, your own mind, you could get out there, grab a microphone, and just crush a song what song would you want to do rock and roll by led zeppelin all right i like that favorite music artist or band right now it's probably little big town okay second last question here this is not fitting for you at all but i'm gonna ask it anyway who's your favorite follow on twitter like if you could only follow one person on twitter and that was it who would you follow nobody (laughs) i wouldn't expect anything less than that all right (laughs) <laughs> last question okay three dinner guests from any era dead or alive any era doesn't matter who it is at your dinner table a couple drinks some food whatever who you got i know you know we've been having fun with this but i don't mean to be morbid but i would love to talk to people when, when uh pearl harbor when i went to pearl harbor i was so taken by that and I would love to talk to three people who are involved in pearl harbor i, I think that would just be so interesting to hear a first-hand account of that. Oh, yeah. That's a great answer. I like that a lot. All right, everyone. Give Paul a follow on Twitter at FAM. That's P-H-A-M 1717. Of course, check him out on the air at WGR and his articles on the web at WGR550.com. Thanks a lot, Paul. I really appreciate your time. We went for quite a while. You told a lot of good stories. I appreciate you. Yep. Thanks for having me. Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranolytics podcast is powered by my company, MattCundellVoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system, consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out MattCundellVoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Big thank you again, Paul Hamilton, WGR. That was great. That was great. Hopefully you got something out of that. If you listened to the whole thing, I almost guarantee that you did. Thanks again, Paul. Don't forget, like I said, at the top, coming up on next Tuesday's show, former American Idol finalist Elliot Yamin is going to be my guest. That's going to be great. Guys, if you haven't done so already... I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. Only jerks don't subscribe to this podcast. If you don't subscribe and you listen, you're a jerk. Don't be a jerk. You subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone, your computer, your laptop, your iPad, whatever it is that you use, literally within just minutes of being released. That's the best benefit of subscribing. You're going to get it before anyone else does. I usually have a new show every Tuesday and every Friday. Don't forget to take a second, rate and review the show. I say it every week. Doing that doesn't seem like much, but it really helps me continue to grow this podcast tremendously. You can find us anywhere that podcasts are found. 
Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, all of them, man, all of them. You can also subscribe to our new YouTube channel. Just go on YouTube, type in Moranalytics Podcast, hit that subscribe button, click that little bell off to the right of it so you'll get notifications when things come out. I take highlight clips from current and past episodes, throw them on there. I'm starting to have some original audio content on there as well. Maybe someday if I'm feeling saucy, I'll also do some videos, though I wouldn't hold my breath on that. But anyway, that is a good, good thing to subscribe to. Last but not least, by the way, since I'm in this mood to continue to ask you to do everything under the sun, go ahead and follow me on Twitter at Tweets. Thanks again for listening. I really, truly appreciate each and every single one of you. Be back next Tuesday. Elliot Yamin will have plenty to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.